this is the Lightning Junkies podcast with your host, Chaz. On this week's episode of the podcast, we have Ben Ark talking about Lightning Network hardware projects. I really wanted to get Ben on this episode because he's very well known for doing Lightning Network point of sale systems with the M5 stack go into all the hardware projects that he does tutorials for. We definitely get into those things as well. We also get into a fairly long discussion about education, mainly because Ben is a former teacher and I happen to have a pet interest in education and schooling and things like that. If you want to support the show, you can find ways to do that by going to lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. You can support us by following us on various podcast platforms, by leaving us review on Apple Podcasts, by chipping in support via Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning, or even a dreaded fiat option as well. For now, let's go ahead and get past all that and jump into this week's episode. I would like to go ahead and welcome Ben to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing today, Ben? Very good. How do you do? I'm doing great. I wanted to get you on the show because I know you from your DIY point of sale system tutorials that you have on YouTube. It got very popular with that, I think. And then I also saw you doing something very similar at the Lightning Conference in Berlin last year. I wanted to get that take. We don't have a lot of people doing too much hardware stuff on there. I think I've had maybe one other person on the show talking about his Bitcoin ATM. 21 is another. Yeah, we're good friends, man. 21 and Enough is focusing on a Bitcoin ATM, but it seems like you're a bit more all over the place and prolific in your experimentation and trying different things. Would you call that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm very much a scatterbrain. I want to do one thing one week and then I'll go full throttle 100% into that thing. And then the next week I get interested about something else and I want to go and veer off and do that. Apologies to anyone who hits up some of my GitHub repos. I don't go in there very often and do the things I should do, maintain my repositories. I just get distracted. I'm so excited about Bitcoin and all its possibilities and all the technology we can build around it. I see lots of things need to get built. I may not be the person to build them, but maybe I'm the person who can make a prototype, which someone could then take forward and build into something useful. 21's enough. We've hung out loads when we've gone to conferences. I've I've got an ATM project as well with the FOSSA, so the free and open source ATM. I was actually working on that. That was the one time where I had a project I was working on where someone got in there before me. I had the project. It was literally all in bits on my desk. I was just looking for a box to put it in and then 21's enough put his tweet out and I was like damn he got in there first the swine <laughs> so it was one of those ideas which is very much in the ether but it's a great project man and he's a great dude they're different as well so his is python based and it has a raspberry pi zero behind it it started out it was more scanning a, a qr code whereas mine was uh, using ln url and is c based they're just kind of different approaches to solving a problem just making a very cheap little atm i think the premise was for mine and i think probably his as well if i don't really want to speak on his behalf but if you can make a really cheap little Bitcoin ATM and you have it in your bar or your cafe as a way to onboard your customers to give them access to buying some Bitcoin just with a loose change, then if someone comes in like law enforcement or whoever and says, you know, what's this? You can just say, I don't know what that is. You know, let them take it away and just deny all knowledge of this little box at the end of your bar. And it's plausible. The, the electronics out there are cheap enough to be able to make these things really cheap. So it's a great project. At some point, I do need to finish that tutorial. But as I said, I get distracted and I start fiddling around with the little projects so there's a bunch of people who dm me every now and then they say when are you going to bring out the fossil tutorial and i'm like oh man the github's there but it's not complete i have actually built it and the project is complete i just need to sit down and put the work into actually making the tutorial up it's great to see other people building things as well you know like 21 because as you said there's not that many people out there and this is my primary motivation to start building was you contribute where you can i'd messed around with some hobbyist electronics before in the past i was aware that in europe we have a big hacker scene and lots of people and in the us as well you know, lots of people playing around with things like microcontrollers and uh, low-end electronics and there just wasn't many people doing it in bitcoin and you'd have these andreas antonopoulos talks where you would talk about an iot of the future and it needs to be controlled by the users and how better way to do that than to actually learn the hardware and we're all about autonomy and, and people taking control so it seemed to make sense that we would take control of these little devices which are sending value to one another and then also try and encourage this this huge resource of hackers and makers out there who haven't even clotted on yet that with bitcoin particularly lightning network you can send and receive value on your tiny little electronics projects and that's just 
fascinating. There's all these scenes out there for these Arduinos and whatever else. They'll build a locking system for their houses, like a fingerprint recognition system. But they haven't yet realized that you have a pay to enter system and have like a lightning payment come up. I was just able to see that there was that gap in the market. And thankfully, this is why I was keen on doing the tutorials. Thankfully, we managed to build a bit of a scene of, of people building. But still not enough. We need more builders. Anyone out there wants to give it a go, go to ARCBTC and then work your way through some of the tutorials. Components are super cheap. It's a lot of fun. I want to get into your background, what led you to this mindset and all that. But before we do that, I wanted to respond a little bit here. Do you think that maybe since Lightning hit mainnet the beginning of 2018, I think, do you think the amount of people touching hardware at least has increased? Because in 2018, I had no Raspberry Pis at all. Now in 2020, I think I have four. I have a Raspberry Pi 4, I have two Raspberry Pi 3s, and a Raspberry Pi 0. I'm still not doing too much with it. I bought a soldering gun, so I'm kind of inching my way into it. But would you say that Bitcoin slash Lightning communities are at least starting to touch this stuff a little bit more? Absolutely. I mean, I think in general, people just in society are starting to play around with hardware a little bit more and become more familiar with these little tiny computers. Raspberry Pis weren't that old a few years ago. They haven't been around that long. I mean, they were still a bit younger, so they still hadn't been adopted. And like Lightning Network, it's the application layer. It's the, the HTTP. Try developing on TCP IP, it's a pain in the ass. Whereas if you have an application layer, it makes it a lot easier to work on. And also the amounts are smaller, so it's a far less intimidating. And you're kind of like one more step away from the protocol stuff and, and exposing like private keys. When I build my little devices. I don't use Tesla or anything, and I'm just throwing around a few Satoshis here and there. It's very limited as to how much damage you can actually do. And because, and I think quite wisely, people are very cautious about the amount of value that they put on, on the Lightning Network. It means that people are less likely to expose a large proportion of their funds to dodgy hardware and dodgy software. There has been a lot more builders, and I hope they're able to kind of contribute to that growth of people developing and building hardware devices and trying to get their hands dirty. Because it's true, if we want privacy, we want control, we want autonomy I and mean, we can't leave that in the hands of big companies like amazon or google we need to build these things ourselves or at least have people who understand how to build these things themselves and just are able to vet the hardware and the software behind them i think it was chris ellis he had the full node raspberry pi project but it was in its infancy you'd have to install raspbian and then download bitcoin core it took quite a long time and then staticus he then for the lightning network he kind of took that concept and wrapped it up into a nice easy tutorial for the first lightning hack day it became quite obvious that people need an easy way to make a node particularly techies who want to mess around with hardware they wanted to build their own nodes so christian rutzel and fulmo they came with this concept of the blitz and then they fought staticus raspberry bolt project which is the name of his node now you've got the blitz which is a very easy project for building nodes and a bunch of other projects as well to span off i think staticus's raspberry bolt project was really groundbreaking and encouraged a lot of people to get involved building their own nodes uh, even companies like casa behind casa there's a raspberry pi and i'm sure they're influenced by the work of someone like staticus yeah absolutely that's where my two raspberry pi threes come from they're not being used for casa anymore unfortunately because i'm not a huge fan of the software any longer what was it about the software because i've never used a casa i've not played with them but I, I always thought it looked quite streamlined you know the gui and things the way you set it all up what was it which turned you off the software i think it was the fact that i was kind of growing in my knowledge of the lightning network i just wanted more control most of the controls for casa are on the command line and they tell you that if you do anything on the command line that you void the warranty so at that point i was like eh you know maybe something will happen to this and maybe i'll want to get it replaced i'm going to hold off eventually i reached the point because my one casa started to malfunction they sent me another one i still haven't recovered my channels yet i have like 0.21 bitcoin sitting on lightning channels and i still need to go get that i'm not super worried about it i can see that they're still there so i'm not torn up about it or anything that issue was not super great and then it was a very unclear process to recover so after that i decided to put my node onto the the casa thing you know the my node software which i'm a huge fan of i've not played with my node but it looks fantastic that one i'm super impressed by the guy contacted me in september unfortunately i didn't have a chance to look into it right away by the time i looked into it i'm like man i'm falling in love with this thing because it has everything on it and had Having BTC Pay server, having things like LND Hub on there, which I found fascinating, was kind of new to me. The Blue Wallet guys were doing that. All kinds of stuff like that. It kind of blew Casa out of the water. No offense to Jameson 
Hansen or anyone on the Costa team. They did a great job with a consumer-facing software package, but I think it's a little bit easier to have a more, I don't know what to call it, like a prosumer or something like that, a tech-sumer type product where it's more tech-oriented but has so many more features and so many more possibilities that it's just better than a tightly walled garden type thing that takes all the features away. Yeah, I mean, because of the rate of innovation, the, the projects which come out and how quickly they come out as well, your closed-source system, you can't update without voiding your warranty. And those things weren't cheap either. It's, it's probably a mismatch for the current market. Eventually, I imagine there will be people who just need a really easy closed-source system, but it would need over-the-air updates so you could still access easily other services. But mine looks great, so I need to play with it. I need to download it. I'm stoked you played with um, L&D Hub as well, because that's one of the most underrated projects. I mean, a lot of people use it, goddamn, but it's been around since the beginning. It's one of the most underrated projects. You can do so much with it, so versatile. I honestly still need to get the Blue Wallet people on in order to ask them about it because I really don't understand it. I know it's like an account management system kind of thing, but I really don't understand how it works. So I'd love to have them jump on and tell me how it works. On a side note, just for our listeners, the other thing that I use my Raspberry Pi 3 for is Pi-hole. If any of the listeners out there want to not have ads on their local network, please use one of your Raspberry Pis that have Pi-hole on it. It'll be basically acting as an ad blocker for your entire home network. That's drastically improved my quality of life, just to throw that out there. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a good hack. I've not done that. I've not played with that yet. Like any technology, really, it's when you smush projects together, when you take something, maybe like an ad blocker, for example, and then maybe some people are willing to pay for you to be exposed to an ad. And then you don't want to block those people. Maybe you're willing to receive some sats, you know, for, for watching an ad or whatever. So taking a project like that and then funneling in some settings. So if they have maybe an LNURL attached or something or some sort of payment <laughs> attached, it's the smushing of technologies. It's the marrying up of different projects which I get really excited about. That was probably the, besides all the Bitcoin lightning stuff, that was probably one of the second most important projects. It was super easy. It took no time at all to really do. You just throw a Raspbian onto an SD card, then you go onto the command line, install PyHole with apt-get, you know, five seconds. It's not that hard. No ads on my Android phone or any phone in the apartment that comes in here that logs onto my Wi-Fi gets no ads. So that's pretty nice for my guests and pretty nice for myself. I do want to stop us with that topic for the moment here. I want to take us a step back. I wanted to ask about your background. I'm very curious to know if there's a lot of hardware tinkering in your background and what led you to Bitcoin here. I was a teacher, so what we call design and technology in this country. So like woodwork and graphic design and some electronics, not much electronics, a little bit. So that's what I was trained in as a teacher for secondary school kids. My first placements were in special schools working with very naughty young people. I worked in normal mainstream with normal kids for a while. Yeah, it was fun and everything. So it was cool not being sworn at, but I kind of missed the naughty kids. So I always kind of worked with like the ones with issues and the sort of last teaching placement I had for a probably about 10 years, was working specifically with kids before they ended up in youth offending. We were the last, you know, the last stop. It was a great service and I really enjoyed it very much. It was an eye-opener because it's nurture. These kids were incredibly gifted because obviously I was a bit techie as a hobbyist thing. We had a whole range of kids. We would find that the teacher who was best suited to the child and I would often be best suited to the, the Asperger's techie kid or you know, the kid who kind of had a leaning towards that. Some of them were fascinating. They'd be going home and they'd be learning all about Python and they'd be doing all these hacks to earn money. But they were chucked out of school and the education system had completely turned their back on them and it's such a waste you know these incredibly independent thinking young people who are just gonna end up with no prospects and probably just end up on drugs and whatever else i very much enjoyed my career in that so we had the austerity measures because of the 2008 stuff and our service was given the squeeze it's expensive, you know. So eventually it became unrecognizable to me. When I started teaching there, we had a good rapport with the kids. Even though they were very violent young people, they would never attack us or anything. And then towards the end, we had kids attacking us and restraints and all that stuff. It's not my cup of tea. I'd worked in places like that before. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself a little bit of time off now. I played around with Bitcoin and, and had Bitcoin stuff on the side. I'm going to sort of investigate how I can contribute towards Bitcoin. And I wasn't really sure how. And I, I like teaching. I thought I'll probably do tutorials. And then because I'd fiddled around with some electronics, and then I realized there's no one playing around with electronics in Bitcoin. I thought, okay, that's, that's probably why I can make my in and, and do some bits and bobs and contribute where I can. I've kind of got a philosophy around this. I, I believe that any resource, natural resource you have access to, after a while, 
you start to feel like you owe it something. So if you Bitcoin, for example, it gives you so much and you have access to the whole system. You, this is the, the beauty of free and open source software. You use it, you appreciate it. And after a while, you're like, I mean, even by running it, you're using it and that, that's contributing. And it's the same with Bitcoin. Even by just owning Bitcoin, you're running it. You know, you're contributing. Even if you haven't even got a node, you're still contributing to Bitcoin just by using it. I like that about free and open source. I believe that free and open source software is a resource, like a natural resource. You have this urge to kind of contribute where you can. I think it's something you shouldn't dismiss. But it's something you should do. It's kind of a responsibility. I don't even remember, but back in the day in the internet, there was this thing of, you know, cedars and leeches. And you wouldn't want to be too much of a leech. You want a seed as well. And I think we kind of lost that somewhere along the way. It's a good point. If you're using the system, then contribute back. And you're running it, which is great. But are there other ways in which you can help the ecosystem grow and get better? And with Bitcoin, I suppose there's a financial incentive too, because it actually increases the value of the product and the, the project. I kind of got screwed over in the 2008 financial crisis. I did the, all the right things at the, the wrong time. So uh, there was this big emphasis on buying houses. You weren't a functional human unless you had a mortgage. And I did that in like 2007. I ended up in negative equity and I was only a young dude. It's very stressful. I had a pretty stressful impact on my life for years. Kind of turned me off the legacy financial system. I realized that you just have no control. You're at the whim of the neoliberals, of the people who actually have their hands on the tap of power and the ability to be able to turn off money or turn on money. And, and that to me, that, I just, that didn't really sit well with me again i was drawn to bitcoin for that reason because you have just more control and hadn't been affected by the 2008 thing i was, I was very happy to find something i could take value out of the system put it into this free and open source system instead that was an opt-out one of the things which i'm interested in seeing happen more and more is the realities of hyperinflation sink in they've got this opt-out they've got this other thing they can do now i actually think that'll probably make fiat currency a little bit more responsible which will be a good thing too you know we all end up with better money so yeah so that's pretty much my background more or less i can't really think of anything else there i was always into technology stuff i had like a few tech businesses on the side playing around with free and open source like telephony installing telephony systems just to earn some money in fact i used to employ a lot of my kids to work because the kids i worked with they were poverty or below the poverty line i'd employ them so we used to go and fit in an asterisk system into some office back home in the city i live in and they were such good workers they were great I definitely want to ask about the special education thing that you were doing there because I started getting flashbacks as you were describing that because it sounded like I was in the equivalent in the United States as a child, not as a teacher. I was the pain in the ass student. I was expelled almost every year I was in school. And I think I fall under the Aspie stereotype there. I haven't gotten verified because it's kind of expensive to get verified here. And I think a lot of neurotypical types, if that's such a thing, anyone who can do more than novice things on a computer is probably on the spectrum. I'm the same. I was chucked out of school. I left school. I didn't have any qualifications or anything. This is what I found with the kids I taught. They're free thinkers. And I was a free thinker, as I imagine you were as well. When someone would tell you to do something which you knew wasn't rational uh, or a good idea, you would question it. I think it is possible to teach kids to be able to channel that questioning of authority in a way which doesn't make authority angry and, and expel you and shout at you and whatever. I wasn't really taught those skills for whatever reason. I had great parents, but I mean, I wasn't really taught those skills. And I think a lot of the kids I taught were very similar. They had their own ideas and they wanted to express those ideas, but they just couldn't do it in a way which didn't annoy authority. That's kind of why they ended up with us. I mean, so many of the kids we had from impoverished backgrounds. I, I had a relatively stable background, but I didn't have that skill set taught. I mean, I've, I've seen kids in other schools, you know, quite affluent schools who are free thinkers and have their own opinions. At some point, someone has taught them how to communicate those ideas in a way which is not offensive to the, the authority, which is telling them to do something irrational. How was it with you? I imagine that's probably similar with your story, is it? Yeah, it's most of it is very flat, authoritarian kind of, it's this way, shut up, there's no other option available to you, just keep going, that's it. I never submitted to that, like ever. I'm in my 30s now, I'm still sitting here, like I'm not going to let those teachers fuck with me, it's, it's still in there. It's really heartbreaking, we'd have kids come to us and they say, oh, I hate education, you know, I hate school. And you'd be like, how can you, you're a human being, in order to walk and talk and, and do all the things which human beings need to be able to do. Human brains enjoy learning. That's why we're able to do all those complex things. But schools, man, they try and take all these different shaped pegs and slam them through the same shaped hole. And it just doesn't work out. There's so much collateral damage. A lot of people take it the wrong way. And I think it's probably because they don't end up teaching themselves. So they don't see the other side. The problem is just resources. For most schools, they have 30 kids in a classroom. Almost all educational specialists agree that you have smaller class sizes. Have 10 kids in a class 
success. And then even if they've got shit going on at home, and even if they struggle to behave themselves, if they're brought up in a system where they have like 10 kids per class, it's like when you have like rural schools with incredibly small numbers, it works a hell of a lot better. The problem is in order to control 30 kids, you need to kind of stamp on their creativity and their questioning. You can't have 30 kids all saying, well, why? And really that's what you're supposed to be doing is encourage them to ask why. <laughs> so, the problem is the, the results happen many years after they've left school. I mean, you can have immediate results like this, the amount of kids who go into college or whatever, but a lot of kids come flunk out of college and they spend a few years, particularly creative kids. It'll take them a while to settle, but when they do eventually settle, they end up going on and doing pretty interesting things. But it's very hard to measure the outcomes. The service I worked in, it was so expensive. You know, we were teaching one-to-one, two-to-one. We turned some kids around. There's this little village near the town where I live and I have a lot of problem with crime. And there was this one boy and there was like overnight, we turned him around. It sank in. We said the right thing to him at the right time. We spoke to him like a human being. You know, maybe it was just offering him a cup of tea. I don't know whatever it was. And for some reason turned him around and the crime rate in this little village like more or less halved overnight like the copper we used to have this policeman come around um because all you know all our kids but the police had their eye on them he would just sort of come around for coffee break or whatever or lunch break and we'd have a little chat with us and he was just like what have you done like the crime rate in this village has just halved over it was all this one boy every night he was just going out and burning stuff and nicking cars and beating people up and they just stopped you could measure it there but quite often it's so hard to measure the outcomes if you're running a country and you've got limited budgets and you want to go to war and fund all these military expeditions then you got to take that money from somewhere and sadly it's from you know people who don't vote the young people so yeah it's, it's a big shame I guess my general response, I can't really speak about how the education system works over there. I really just never looked into it. So I just have zero idea, but I'm willing to bet it's fairly similar. You know, grades, both levels of grades and I'm being graded on my work are probably similar. And I find those two things to be some of the biggest problems in school. I think putting kids into specific age groups is wrong. I think that doesn't help. And I think having your education be linked to a grade system that's demoralizing is wrong as well. Oh, absolutely. I was just going to say, because you were saying that that one kid said he hated schooling. And I wanted to just to paraphrase Mark Twain that says, don't let schooling interfere with your education. <laughs> so true, isn't it? God damn. Exactly. And that's how I feel. After I left school, I started to fall in love with learning. I'm like, wow, I can actually like learning. I realized it was it was the school that kind of beat the love of learning out of me. I would go to school, hate learning all day, go home and teach myself 3D modeling as a teenager. That's a story I've heard so often. And from the kids I taught, they would be, particularly nowadays when kids have got access to things like YouTube, they can just do all this self-directed study. And they do as well. And it gives me a lot of hope that education for sure has got to change. Because towards the end of me teaching, where I was teaching, although the kids' behavior was worse, the actual kids were better than we'd had before. I think they were better because they were going home each night and they were watching many hours worth of YouTube. And inevitably, their brains were leading them towards good information. I know it's very easy to be critical of humans differentiating between good and bad data nowadays when you, it seems that you have all this like fake news, flat earth type stuff going on. But I think the reality is that the information revolution which we wanted the internet to be is starting to finally take hold with these kind of internet natives, the young people now who are just fluid with the internet. There were some kids towards the end, I would teach something. I was teaching actually computer science for a little while. They would say, why, why are you teaching me this? If I wanted to learn this, I'd just go on YouTube and learn it. And I was like, flipping awesome. <laughs> okay, let's do some Googling. Let's go and find a better teacher than me because I'm sure there's one out there. It's absolutely heartbreaking to think that education schools do that to people, that they drum the love of learning out of them. But thankfully, now kids have this opt-out and they can learn by themselves on the internet. They have access to all this information. And that's a great thing. Before we jump off of this subject, because I think this is pretty far away from Bitcoin and Lightning, but um, do you have any opinions on alternative ways to do schooling because once again i don't know how things work over there but have you ever heard of things like anarchy free schools montessori schools things like that yeah i mean there's some good kind of experimentation i went to some crappy schools i think it helps if kids are sent to a good school so i worked in some good schools in some nice areas we have some good publicly funded schools but you have to pick the right school like with our son we moved to make sure that he went to a school which was in a rural area so it's a lot of healthy farmer kids who tend to have parents who encourage their education there's less behavioral issues and things there where i live in wales they have these welsh schools where they speak welsh and they tend to be better 
or two for whatever reason. I don't know why. So it's also one of those. I think some people have such a horrible experience and obviously they don't want to put their own children through those experiences because they understand how lucky they were to come out the other side and not be really affected in a negative way by education. But I do get worried sometimes when people start a revolution through their children. I don't know. I think sometimes it might not be healthy for the kids if their people are home learning. I know some people who teach their kids at home and their kids don't go to school and they're great, but it's quite rare. Think how many good teachers you had in school and then imagine your parents teaching you day in, day out. What are the chances that they're going to be a good teacher? If you had a bad teacher in the school, there's always the hope that one day you'll be away from them and maybe have a good teacher next year or next lesson or whatever. Whereas you don't have that so much with, and I'm not discouraging people to teach their kids at home. I think it is possible, but it's something which needs to be done with great delicacy. We have something of a fad, which is this idea of unschooling at the moment, which some of the people I've met who unschool their kids, which is basically like you let kids direct themselves completely and you don't give them any framework or any structure. And I think that's just nonsense. The kids need structure and framework and maybe some people make it work. The few examples I've seen is just come across as neglect. You know, you have a kid who's just freaking nuts stinks because they never wash loopy doopy running around the house screaming and you're like okay this unschooling thing isn't really working out for you <laughs> and you're starting you're doing a revolution through your kids and it's not a great thing i would encourage people to do everything they can to get their kids just into a good school including moving whatever you know whatever you need to do if it's still not possible to find them a good education or if, even in fact if they're just having a, such a miserable time in school then they'll look for alternatives but i would just do it all very cautiously because it's dangerous stuff isn't it if you do find a nice school and nice kids and nice teachers who don't scream and shout at them all day long then it's great that kids love it it's such a shame that it should be something society could take care of you know where are we now it's 2020 like come on guys we <laughs> We should be able to provide decent education for our kids and have small class sizes and draw upon all the the amazing expertise which adults have around us to contribute to the kids. And some of the Montessori type stuff is great and really interesting and really beneficial to a lot of kids. I would just be cautious starting a revolution to your children. Taking that as a bit of a segue here to bring us back to Bitcoin and Lightning, I would probably call myself a teacher at this point. And Richard Feynman was really famous for suggesting that if you wanted to learn something, go teach it because that would help to fill in a lot of the gaps for yourself. Would you agree with this philosophy? 100%. Best way to learn is to teach, absolutely. When I was a teacher, because the sorts of kids we worked with, we would encourage them to teach other kids. It is really the best way to learn. Even if you don't feel qualified in teaching something, you need to swat up when you're trying to teach. I think it also showed a humbleness as well to admit that you're on a learning journey as well. There's nothing which kind of gets my back up more when you have self-proclaimed thought leader and they act as if they have all the answers. You'll never see them say, oh no, I got that wrong. I got this wrong. I think it's very misleading to people. And I think it's much more honest to say, I'm on a learning journey. I may be a few steps ahead of you. Let's help each other figure this thing out. I think it really goes toward the point that you were saying earlier that people have this psychological need to give back to Bitcoin and to Lightning. And in my case, I think I realized I love learning, I love teaching. I think I always have, even though I've spent years doing a lot of other things that aren't really those things. It just seems natural. It just seems like this is what not everyone should be doing per se, but that people should give back to Bitcoin if they can or give back to Lightning if they can. Learn as much as you can. Try to figure out these hard issues on Lightning, for example, or hard issues on Bitcoin, or just to help people on board, which I think is my main goal to try to find ways to educate the people that are already here and then to figure out ways to get new people in and to help educate them and get them bootstrapped and into the system and everything. You shouldn't be afraid of asking stupid questions and having stupid ideas as well, because sometimes those stupid ideas aren't stupid and they'll lay seeds, even if you don't end up making the thing. I like this a lot about Bitcoin. I think in a lot of technology disciplines, like go on Stack Overflow and look at the reactions people get if they ask, you know, stupid quote unquote questions. I ask stupid questions all the time. I love Twitter for that. I'm struggling with some issue. I'll just like tweet it out and then see what responses come back. And quite often it's helpful advice and people will DM you and say, what are you trying to do? You're trying to do this and they'll, they'll help you through. Nobody just knows how to do something. They all have a helping hand along the way. It's a good environment to learn because there, there are a lot of people in Bitcoin who don't mind you asking silly questions. They're actually excited about the fact that you're just asking questions about Bitcoin related topics and they're able to talk about it. Going back to your hardware stuff and you getting into Bitcoin and Lightning after doing the whole teaching thing for a while, how did that start? What did that look like when you started tinkering around and started getting into it there? 
it's all quite interesting because it ties itself all together in a way. I've been doing Bitcoiny stuff for a while, but I hadn't really been out into the community. When I was left teaching, I had some time. So I was able to go to the first Lightning Hack Day. That was fantastic because there was like a very small amount of people in the room and they were all fascinating people. We had like Amir Taki and Roast Beef there and a bunch of the German Bitcoin developers. And it was just a great group of people. I was easily the most underqualified person there. It was amazing that I managed to sneak my way in. When we were there, I saw people had made sweet machines and they'd built nodes in Raspberry Pis and they had QR code and then you scan the QR code, you go to a website, you'd order the amount of sweets you want and then they pay on Lightning, obviously, and then they came out the sweet machine. And they had this full nut set up. I thought, well, a sweet machine, if anything, is going to be like a slave device. Your node is clearly like it's a master. You want cheaper, lower-end hardware spitting out your sweets. You don't want you know someone to walk off with your sweet machine and effectively have your node. That's not great. I saw a bit of an in there. I knew very little about electronics. My coding skills are terrible now, but they were even worse then. I got an ESP32. I sort of researched like a semi-decent microcontroller I kind of based some work on and I got to the ESP32 and I started hacking around with it. I managed to get, I got a little e-paper display. Then after probably a couple of hack days, I was able to get a QR code on the display. That's it. Not it communicate with anything yet, but just get a QR code to actually stay on the bloody display. And then when you paid the QR code, nothing happened when you paid the QR code. In the, the second hack day, I faked it. I did a demo. I had my finger on the wire and I was like, look, I'm paying the, the invoice and I pay the invoice on my phone and then I like trigger the, the wire so the speech went out and everyone went hey well done and I was like it's a complete lie I went home then and I've, I finally got the bloody thing working we ended up at the New York Lightning Hack Day and I met a guy called George who was also interested in the microcontrollers and stuff and we were talking ways in which we could make it simpler so you know you've got a microcontroller with a Lee paper device when you pay it it spits out sweets or whatever can we not just have like a static QR code when we scan the QR code can't my phone effectively do a get request get an invoice back for an amount then you choose whether to pay it or not rather rather than have to keep regenerating new QR codes. So we talked about this. And then on the second hack day, we sort of hacked away. He actually got a copy of a Claire wallet and built in. It's only like, honestly, a couple of lines of code in order for it to be able to do a get request, get an invoice. You pay the invoice on your phone. It just means you can just keep paying and then you get your sweet machines. And he built that into a little arcade and then demoed it. And that was great. We kind of liaised over the internet, became friends. He was a proper developer and he was very encouraging. As was as well, big shout out to Christian Russell and Jeff, the people who run the Lightning Hack Days, even though they could see that I was new as hell they were very encouraging on me developing something probably had i not had that encouragement i would have been maybe a little bit too embarrassed to continue but this again why it's very important to encourage people and particularly if they're asking stupid questions they're asking stupid questions because they're the beginning of their journey and one day they'll end up making something which is pretty cool so i'll encourage them so anyway so i went home eventually i got my sweet machine working so i could pay money and then it would spit sweets out and then it would generate a new invoice on this little e-paper display and that was great but then i thought well i can add a keypad to this so i added a little matrix keypad a little button keypad thing you know and then i could input an amount and then press the little hashtag on the keypad that would go and fetch an invoice for that amount and i was like dude i made a pure point of sale brilliant so that was the thing called it 121 which was the first like little point of sale thing i made i put in a little box and it's all low-end stuff you know i think it costs like 20 dollars to make this little point of sale thing using an e-paper display i kind of got hooked then because i got a lot of good feedback from people i kind of got hooked on it and i started playing around with different displays it took me a while actually ages went through a whole load of different displays trying to find the right one like one which was cheap low powered but also easy for other people to install nothing too fancy eventually i settled on a little tft screen which was like five dollars each or something and they have multiple colors and they have a backlight the realities are that when you're using a point of sale terminal in a dark bar you, you don't want any paper you need a backlight that turned into the quickening project but by then there was another company called m5 stack and they came out with this development board which has a screen and a keypad built in it's a neat little device and it even comes with a charging dock i turned that into a point of sale terminal that's the m5 stack sats project that just works out of the box absolutely perfectly rootsall got that because he was developing the blitz stuff he then hooked that up with the blitz in room 77 so there's an iconic bar in, in which i'm sure you went to in berlin called room 77 which is like a mecca for bitcoin in, in europe and they got the m5 stack sats in there for the hack days after that and the, in for the lightning conference as well everyone was paying for beers on my little device which i'd made it all started in that first hack day of me just not knowing why I was doing, but looking at this full node sweet machine and thinking there's probably an easy way of doing that. 
And then just having a load of encouragement by the people around me, like Christian Roots or George and Jeff, and to, to name a few, there's others out there, I don't want to miss them off the list. You can't sit there and wait for divine inspiration, just sitting around smoking weed and watching films and thinking, oh, I'm going to come up with a good idea one day. You need to start building. And as soon as you start building, you find problems. Going back to that New York Lightning Hack Day, the problem which we were talking about, in Lightning, you can't have a static QR code. You need to make an invoice and then somebody pays the invoice on their phone. That problem, which was solved by doing a get request or a post request, that eventually I didn't work on it. I, I, I put out a proposal on the Bitcoin emailing list, which nobody read and nobody commented on, but I put it out there anyway. And it's for doing that, it's for doing the get and the post request via the mobile phone, via the, the Lightning wallet. That then was evolved by Anton and, and Fiat Jaff of BLW wallet. So BLW were the first to implement that as an actual thing. But what's cool is, I think it was in one of the hack days, I met a guy called Mr. Felton, who's the lead developer of the Zat desktop wallet. We spoke at length, I think me, him and Christian Rutzel, how cool it would be to have like a Lightning wallet do get and post requests. And he understood it, he got it. I don't know how familiar you are with LNURL, but it has like a suite of functionality, which it adds to Lightning. So you can do the static pay to a QR code like we envisioned. You can use a QR code as a withdraw. So when you scan the QR code, you just get the funds and you want it like it's a pull payment instead. You can use it for authentication. And now he's building all of that into the Zap desktop wallet, which is absolutely awesome to see. You can't sit around waiting for inspiration, ask stupid questions, get out there, get into the community. Even if you can't physically get out into the community, join those Telegram groups, try and build some of the stuff which people are building. And then you'll start to realize there's problems and there's some solutions you can come up with yourself and you can contribute to off your own back. I think my QR code generation on the e-paper device, there was like four different people, developers who helped me, different hack days, and then just over the internet. And now looking back, it's a pretty easy thing to do to be able to get this QR code to display on an e-paper screen. For me at that time, it was just, it was how the hell do I get this thing to display? The M5 stack, which I used for the M5 stack sats, the little point of cell in room 77, you can also just use it with just the screen and it's got a microcontroller behind it and a couple of buttons. A couple of days ago, I released the Bowser DIY hardware wallet so you can use it to make a hardware wallet and it's pretty cool because as a project it's kind of hidden behind a little tetris game you could use it if you go traveling borderlines and you got stopped and they said what's this little device you've got with you it, it doesn't look like a hardware wallet it's just a little square device and when you turn it on it plays tetris that's pretty fun you just got to start making stuff and then ideas kind of shoot off from building and from making so i can encourage that Last year, I remember you doing a lot of the M5 stack stuff. I think I ended up going a different path and just messing with Raspberry Pis a little bit, a little bit more basic. I was very fascinated by the M5 stack. It just seems like a very different beast than the Raspberry Pi. Could you give us a little bit more on just the M5 stack itself? The M5 stack's just a well-packaged microcontroller and screen. So I have two point of cell tutorial projects. I have the, the Quickening and I have the M5 stack sats. And the hardware on both is the same. It's just that you can buy packaged version of it off the shelf from AliExpress or Amazon or whatever. And it's a thing called an M5 stack made by this company called M5 stack. But behind the M5 stack is a microcontroller called an SP32. And then it's just got a TFT screen and a couple of buttons built in. The, the Quickening, the other point of cell terminal I make, that's just using the bare bones components so you have some jump leads and you plug in your tft screen into the sp32 the little gpios and then you plug in a keypad and you have the same functionality as the m5 stack but i mean it's like a third the price because you're obviously building it yourself but it's a little bit more control and you have a little bit more understanding of how the hardware works and it's actually that hard i usually get like 20 of those kits and then when i go to conferences when i used to go to conferences i would give them out to people then i sit down with them and then build the point of sale terminal and it'd take like half an hour and they'd have a fully working point of sale terminal for Lightning Network. If you're working in a group, maybe like an hour to get a fully working point of sale terminal. I could do it even quicker now, I think. I tell you what is quite cool though. I gave out one of those kits to this guy in San Francisco. What you have got in San Francisco, you've got the old school, like proper crypto guys, cryptographer types, not cryptos and shit coins. And I gave one of them one of these kits. He's gone off and made this great project with Christopher Allen. I he's still using the e-paper. It's like a little box. It's just got a whole range of cryptographic tools in it it's not a hardware device but a whole range of like different cryptographic tools in it it's a great project I mean, it's still young but i'm looking forward to making it a little bit more accessible to people could still maybe a little bit too hard now at the moment that was me inspiring somebody who bloody hell is leagues beyond my development skills raspberry pi say you've got raspbian on your raspberry pi that's an operating system it's probably not necessary for something like a point of sale terminal you don't need an operating system you just need basic functionality you need it to display some stuff on a screen and then read from some sensor or from some keypad or whatever and then 
then maybe do some get and post requests over the internet. So it doesn't need like a full-blown OS, which means that you cut down on the amount of vulnerabilities. I like low-end hardware because you have to be lean with your development. I use the Arduino IDE because it's easy for people following my tutorials. There are other ways of doing it, but you guys use the Arduino IDE. These devices, I program them in, in C, but it's kind of like an Arduino version of C. So it has some extra bits to make it a little bit easier. Instead of having to use like some crazy character array where you define the exact amount of memory, you know, to the byte, how much you'll be putting in that character array. You can make a variable called a string and chuck stuff in it. And that's a little bit more like a var in, in JavaScript, but it's a bit more forgiving a variable. It makes developing a hell of a lot easier. You don't have to learn all the different types of character arrays and whatever else. The projects I do, you're talking a couple of hundred lines of code, apart from the firmware for the actual board, which is being pushed along with my, you know, extra couple of hundred lines of code. It's very lean. It has to be because these microcontrollers, they're not powerful enough to be able to run something like a full-blown operating system. So I actually find Raspberry Pis more disorientating and harder to work with because I can like log in through a terminal and I got to download a whole bunch of different libraries and then all dependencies or whatever. And then I you can't find a dependency and, you know, it's Linux stuff. And I find that pretty tricky. Whereas, so the hardware wallet, for example, the hardware wallet's got two libraries, which I'm using. I'm using Stepin. Snagrov, his Ubitcoin library, which lets you do Bitcoin stuff uh, in Arduino. And I'm using the M5 stack library. And it's a couple of clicks. You've downloaded these two libraries. And then you've, you can see... There's actually quite a lot of lines of code on that project. There's probably like a thousand or something. But you can see it all. You can just read through all the lines of code. It wouldn't take you long. It'd take you an hour. And even if you don't know what you're doing, you can look through it and you can say, okay, he's doing like an if loop, a for loop there and asking too many if statements there. You can verify it's not doing anything dodgy. And then you just flash it to your device and it just works and boots up quickly. Whereas with Raspberry Pi stuff, I find it more tricky. Unless you get like Blitz Project, you get a nice image and you can just flash onto an SD, slam it in, follow the instructions on the screen and it builds you a node. It's just bigger, it's bigger software. So yes, I understand it's something different and, and maybe a little bit new and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I can hack this little tiny microcontroller device. But, you know, it's hobbyist stuff. A lot of the Arduino projects, you crack open any old IoT device, which is connecting to Wi-Fi and very likely you're going to see an ASP32 or something similar, some sort of similar microcontroller in there. The boards and things you will buy on AliExpress or Amazon or eBay or whatever uh, with the little GPIO pins and everything, they're, they're for hobbyists and enthusiasts. They're not professional mechanical engineers or electricians or some even though they use them buy one of those little m5 stacks and turn it into a point of sale turn it into a hardware wallet i got another project where it displays qr codes and you can plug a little relay in it's just using a little jump wire so you don't even have to solder or anything and it means that you can pay lightning and turn anything on uh, for a period of however long you want to turn it on for so i used it an arcade machine thing to turn on the, to give you credits but you could use it for absolutely anything you know for a sweet machine corner Karis, who does the fun with bitcoin podcast i talked him through the project and he made a flipping awesome sweet machine out of it like a gun, proper gumball machine which looks dope i really encourage people they're like 30 dollars. you know buy one it'll give you hours of enjoyment and you'll learn loads about programming and stuff i could have sworn it was like a hundred bucks for the kit or something maybe i'm misremembering if you want the keypad so you can do like the point of sale thing that's 70 dollars if you go direct from china but if you go for just the little square m5 stack then that's like $30 and you can make the hardware wallet and show a QR code and turn something on for a period of time. But I also have bare bones, the SP32 versions of those where the, the SP32 is like $3, $4. You can pretty much build the same thing. It just requires a little bit of fiddling around with wires. I wanted to take a different path and like I wanted to have a hardware project for the Lightning Conference just to make myself stand out a bit more or whatever. My idea was very basic. There's this company in Japan that has this little hardware project that they're doing i can't probably pronounce their name right but it's like neyuda or something like that they had a shield for arduino and a raspberry pi i had to solder the pins on there that's why i had to get my soldering irons that was very tricky but i got the pins soldered on I was very proud about that. I got everything working, kind of. I think their software needs a lot of work, and that part wasn't really working very well. I'm pretty sure I've seen that. It's like this little hat thing, which has like an e-paper screen on and things. Is that it? Yeah. It's cool. Like they've tried to develop like a board or a hat for Raspberry Pi or Arduino or whatever. But I mean, it's nothing you couldn't do with a lot cheaper hardware and probably a lot less stress because there'll be a well used library so if you buy there's an e-paper screen called the g oh, 
what's it, GX EPD, I think it's called. And there's one by Waveshare as well. Um, and it's like a little one and a quarter, one and a third inch e-paper screen, which you can show a, a lightning invoice on. They're like $10, which is such a well-used bit of hardware that the libraries you use will be fully working and they won't be buggy and you won't have to do anything hacky. And the Arduino library you can install from you, the actual library manager inside Arduino. They have libraries for Python as well, so you could plug it into the GPIOs on the Raspberry Pi pretty easy. So it was cool that they were making this thing, but when I saw it, I was like, I didn't really see the point. And I went and sat with the dude and got excited about it, but I was thinking, man, like it's creating too much friction. Like You could just buy one of these things uh, and then buy an LED or whatever and then have the same functionality with it probably be easier to install maybe they're still in in the R&D phase and they'll have something which is a bit more fully functional at some point but how much was it? It was pretty expensive, actually, because I think shipping from Japan, I think, was a big part of that. But I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was $30 for the device and 20 for shipping. And then I had to buy the Raspberry Pi Zero and the Arduino. So not super cheap. I think it was probably closer to the $80 or something. You've got nodes, yeah? Like lightning nodes. Yeah, the, the main one that I'm using right now that isn't on a VPS somewhere is my, my node on a Raspberry Pi 4. Right, okay. Well, one of the coolest things, the coolest projects, and it's probably the most underappreciated project I've done. I don't know anyone who's made it. I find it the most useful thing ever. It's an ESP32 with two LEDs, and it just does a GET request to the GET info on LND, the V1 GET info. And then if it can't hit that point, the red LED comes on. If it can, the green LED comes on. So... I just have it, and like, if my node's down in the room I'm in, it's like, bing, my node's down. Okay, why, what, what the fuck's going on? Why is it down? Currently, I'm in the process of trying to expand that into something a bit more fun, you know, like a little lamp, which has like an RGB and it changes color depending on your node's mood or if it's got channel issues or if it's received a payment, get it to do kind of a disco light thing. But you could buy an ESP32, a couple of LEDs, and some little jump wires, and it'll cost you six, seven dollars. You could make that project. It's on my GitHub somewhere in the Arduino IDE, and I don't think it has any extra libraries installed in it. It's using bare bones libraries just in the Arduino IDE. It's useful. Like it's it's nice to see this little light in your kitchen, which is like, yeah, your node's on. I hope to expand that project a little bit more. Give yourself ten dollars, and then go buy an ESP32 and some LEDs, and then start playing around on the Arduino IDE, and you'll be amazed how easy it is. Obviously, you'll have that initial evening of hitting your head against a brick wall thinking how the hell do I get this thing to work once you break through that you'll be like oh okay this is easy but I very much encourage you and everyone to go out and do that because it didn't cost you anything you know it's $10 and you actually build something useful for yourself in fact the first project I did was a fake hardware wallet so you make a telegram group with your mates on you tell them look if I'm ever in trouble this telegram group will get hit with you know an SOS call giving you information of how to get police to the house or whatever. And you make this fake hardware wallet. And then the idea is that as soon as it's powered on, it connects to your Wi-Fi, it sends this message to the Telegram group repeatedly, then bugs all your friends into getting into contact with police. And that's kind of adversarial, like Bitcoin protection measure. If you get wrenched and someone says, plug in your hardware wallet, and you're like, okay, this is my hardware wallet, this thing, which looks nothing like a hardware wallet. It's definitely it's small. It goes kind of like a hardware wallet. I got to plug it in, then you plug it in. And it doesn't work. And you're like, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. But then that time it's telegrammed your mates and told you you're in trouble and you need help and you need people sent around. In fact, you can add a button to that and you could be a panic button. So you hit the panic button and it messages the telegram group with all your mates on and they can help you out. Again, a useful thing. And it costs you like $5 and it makes you now adversarial if you ever get wrench attacked. Learning through these little projects is fantastic. I think with your encouragement here, I'm going to buy one of these little kits for me and one of these little kits for my partner who's going to hear this later while editing and know that I'm going to buy them one of these and they're going to kick me later. So it's going to be great. The problem is it becomes an addiction and you end up with loads of these little funny devices. I've got such a collection out of these little microcontrollers. So the, the latest tutorial, the hardware wallet, it's like an Aladdin's cave. So I've been looking at microcontrollers, basically with an SD card. I need an SD card and I need, and I need a screen and I need a couple of buttons. I don't know if you saw that, the latest hardware wallet project, the Bowser thing. It's, it's a bit like a cold card. You put a transact on a SD, plug it in, and then there's like a menu you can scroll through and you sign the transaction. It stores your private key on the little hardware device. Even though it's like hacky as hell, DIY hardware wallet, like crikey, be careful. It's still a gazillion times safer to have your 
primary key on that thing than it is to have on a mobile phone or a laptop or something with like a full operating system on it. Anyway, so I, I want to make that cheaper. The moment you use the M5 stack and that's $30 and that's cool, but I want it so cheap that I can give them away. Not people who are going to put vast sums of money on there, but it'd be fine for storing a couple of grand on you. I've been looking at some of the new microcontrollers coming out and I've ordered a couple and I got one which came today, in fact. And the one which came today, I think it was $15. It's got a camera. It's got a, not a big screen, but I mean like an inch and a quarter by an inch and a quarter TFT, an SD card slot and a couple of buttons. I could turn that into a hardware wallet and that's $15. I've also ordered these RISC-V. So RISC-V is like a fully free and open source microcontroller. It's not as good as the ESP32s, mostly free and open source. All of it's auditable, but they have some licensing on some of the bits inside of it. So I would like to go full through free and open source. There's a RISC-V free and open source microcontroller. We can buy a little development board, which has a little TFT screen, an SD card, this RISC-V open source microcontroller, and it's like $6. And it's got all the things you need to be able to make like a kick-ass little hardware wallet. The good thing about RISC-V as well, because they're a bit shit, is they don't have like the SP32. You've got a Wi-Fi module in there and a Bluetooth module in there, which adds some extra attack vectors if you're using it for a hardware wallet. Not that you're turning those things on, but it would be nice not to have them in the microcontroller you're using. So you go on, on something like Banggood or AliExpress and you start looking, you start Googling like ESP32s with screens and there's you know ones with e-papers, one with TFTs, one with little SD cards. You get ones for doing Laura one type stuff, for doing mesh networking. And man, it's like, wow, like all the Bitcoin things I can make with these little devices. So cool. What's great about it as well is the innovation going on in that sector, in the microcontroller sector. These things are just getting more powerful, faster, cheaper. The hardware wallet industry, for example, there'll be some free and open source projects. There'll be Steppen's library, which I use to make my one. That'll encourage some people to make their own hardware wallets. Little cottage industries will start turning up with people making these fun little hardware wallets, which maybe add some sort of innovative feature, which other hardware wallets haven't got because you've got access to all these other modules whatever you can add on to these things i think the idea of spending like a hundred dollars on a hardware wallet even though it's securing your bitcoin and it feels like you should be spending a hundred dollars on it but that concept i think in a few years will be gone i think with five dollars you should be able to have a secure hardware wallet where you know what software it's running in the background and you know the hardware is completely free and open source also you've completely removed the supply chain attack which is huge the concept of spending a lot of money on a hardware wallet will soon be an end for a very functional hardware wallet, it'll be kind of accepted. And you'll have companies just producing very cheap wallets for people, which would be great. I've heard from a very well-known, who I won't mention, a hardware wallet brand, that they've been looking more and more into diversifying their business model because they understand that the cat's out of the bag and there's no reason why people can't build and make their own hardware wallets. We put a huge amount of emphasis on people building their own nodes. We don't put that much emphasis on people building their own hardware wallets. Why? Why don't we put any emphasis on people building their own hardware wallets? It's a great way to learn how transactions are signed, how public keys are derived, how the security models of different hardware wallets. You think, well, which way do I want to start building a hardware wallet? Which way do I want to go with it? Do I want to be more like a cold card? Do I want to be more like a Trezor? I'm super excited about the up and coming, soon to be a big thing, hardware DIY enthusiast building scene, which is going to emerge in Bitcoin. All the different innovations and, and creativity, which is going to come out of it. Because there's all these different modules which are available. You know, you may have fingerprint recognition on your hardware wallet. I mean, you could buy a little fingerprint module very cheaply for one of these Arduino boards. I'm really looking forward to that being expanded more. I think if you're securing like $100 worth of Bitcoin, it's worth you spending an extra $100 on a Trezor to secure it because you're likely to lose it if you try and just secure it through a seed or a private key. They are great, these hardware wallets. But I do think that it puts people off that higher price tag for a hardware wallet. And I think sometimes people end up exposing funds to attacks just because they don't want to put out a bit of cash Particularly if they haven't got much cash, there's no reason we can't have cheap DIY hardware wallets, which in many ways could be better than the consumer ones you buy. Super excited to see that develop as a project. I really appreciate that. I think the listeners would really appreciate that too, because yeah, there's the huge thing of like everyone have their node, but if I were to guess, there's the naive sense of I can't secure my own private keys. Now that's going too far. I can't do that part. And I want to hit a couple more topics. Recently, I hit 10,000 listens on my podcast. Part of that, I gave out some prizes to people. One of the people complained to me because they said, hey, instead of asking for an invoice, why don't you go on to Ellen Bits? com and use LNURL plugin over there and just drop it in there and give it to him versus asking for an invoice and giving it to him that way. As I understand it, you're behind LNBits. Is this right? 
it comes out of necessity. You start building something and then you're like, oh, I need this extra functionality. How am I going to get it? I need custodial service, which can have like multiple accounts. It was when I was doing the ATM and it makes sense. I don't use my node I keep hacking away at and it's very unreliable and it keeps going down and channels aren't balanced properly. It's the right mess. It makes sense. I outsource that to a company like OpenNode, for example. In order for my ATM to be able to generate an LN URL and then pay someone, it needs to have access to my admin key. Essentially, that ATM has access to all the funds on my OpenNode account. I don't want that. I only want it to have access to like 100 quid's worth of funds. It's like it's a loose change ATM. Worst comes to worst and someone steals the ATM, hacks into the microcontroller, steals the admin key, they can get $100. But it's not possible. So I contact OpenNode and I contact other companies, other people who have developed, you know, have like sort of custodially type solutions. They say, yeah, yeah, we'll build accounts into in time. You know, it's on the roadmap, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, I need that functionality right now. I'd also made the first faucet project as well. It was called the Sinclair faucet, which was using the LNURL withdrawal thing. I realized how much work I had to do to get this thing to be able to go and fetch an invoice and, and pay the invoice and do all the LNURL stuff and then people said well, why don't you free and open source the code and I was like because it's flipping horrible like it's horrible code you don't want to look at it it's disgusting in the back end so I thought if I do another little project like that experimenting with some technology I want something which is a lot of the development's already done like the stack part of the stack's already built for me and then if I do develop on it then I want extensions just like a small amount of functionality I want other people to be able to access and use that functionality so LNBits just kind of made sense it was like okay I'll make it easy for anyone to be a custodian. Anyone can run LMBits and become an open node, become an LMPay. They can do it for their local community. I know someone who's installing a node in their local bar and their bar is going to have LMBits running. It'll have branded wallets. So you can give its customer who's never had Lightning before a wallet. When we go to conferences and you've got no coiners there or people who haven't got any Bitcoin or Lightning or whatever, you then have to get them to download a wallet. It's quite nice to have like an Insta wallet, a wallet which you can open in a browser and then it can use the camera to scan a QR code for an invoice. And you could just give to like somebody who haven't even used Bitcoin before. You say, right, scan this QR code. It takes them to a URL and that URL is like a pre-funded little lightning wallet. And then they can have the experience of paying for something in the conference. So that was another bit of functionality we wanted added just because we wanted to be able to do that for people when we're in conferences or when we go to like hacky stuff in, in Europe. And it just made sense that we all be free and open source. So there's a few things which we needed, like an Insta wallet, an easy way for people to run some sort of custodial solution even it's on a micro scale just for their friends, family or conference like Bitcoin 2021. They could run LMBits on a VPS attached to OpenNode or LMP or something, something reliable or their own node if they wanted to. And then they could give out LNURL QR codes which open up a wallet in their own branded wallet. So they could give out you know, hundreds of Satoshis or thousands of Satoshis everyone who walks through the door and then they open it, it opens a wallet in their browser on their phone and they can use it to pay for go on the arcade machines or for some sweets or I don't know for something else or for some other experience. It would be easy. It'd take like an hour, maybe less, if you were someone who knew what they were doing. I wanted to kind of build something like that. Christian Rutzel, I spoke to him about it and he said, yeah, it sounds cool. Great to have an Insta wallet. But if you're putting it on the Blitz, it needs to be in Python and it needs to be very, very lean. I don't want loads of extra code on the Blitz. That was nice to have. I mean, I'd never written in Python before, but it meant that I had to go out and find a really lightweight server software, which is Flask, which is the Python server, which runs LMBits. And everything I had to do was lightweight. I made a, a full prototype, minimal viable product type thing where you could experience the functionality, but like I'm a hobbyist and my development skills aren't great. So it was really messy code in the back end. I commissioned a couple of dudes to go in, Fearjaff, in fact, and a guy called Alira to, I just kind of put out a tweet saying, I've made this thing, code's horrible, bounty, someone come in and tidy up the code for God's sake, please. And they went above and beyond. Gave them like a decent sum, but they went above and beyond. And then before we knew it, it was like a free and open source project and all three of us were working. Fearjaff kind of took a step back because he was working on other stuff, Alira. So I'd used the CSS framework. I just picked stuff which I thought was okay. He's like a proper professional developer working on front end stuff. So he's like, man, you need better framework. So he showed me this thing called Quasar. It's a little bit harder to, to use, but it's, you know, it's lightweight and it's, it looks nice and we can make Ellen Butts look a lot better and, and a lot cleaner and leaner in the back end in the code. So I was like, okay, he worked really hard and kind of like fully refactored the whole thing. The mentoring, man, as I was saying, the, the support you get from your peers. I looked through my Telegram chat with the dude and I'm like, how did he not tell me to F off? Some of the questions I was asking was stupid. For him, particularly, it's, it's real low level development I was getting stuck on, but he kind of nurtured me through it and helped me through it. We built a system because I'm scatterbrained. I have an idea and I'm like, oh, I want to build this thing and I may be able to concentrate on it for a day or two. I need something I can just build an extension in quickly. The way LMBits is now, I can do that. If I have some functionality I want to add to LMBits, 
I can build an extension for it. The other concept was that it would be kind of the WordPress of Bitcoin account system or Bitcoin wallets. It starts off as a bare bones wallet, and then you can add additional functionality through plugins and extensions. We sort of made sense because we saw other projects out there. They want to incorporate all this amazing technology like LNURL, all these cool things going on in Lightning Network and Bitcoin. It ends up with a very goofy UI or whatever, where you're tripping over all these menu systems. But it made sense that we have plugins and people just add the functionality they want. They install the plugin they want as they go and then that gives them access to some new functionality and then they can learn whatever they need to do to be able to use that functionality one step at a time that was another thing we needed it's now a full-on respectable project and it works and it's clean it's lean it's incredibly professional in the in the back end the code's great I've got lmbits.com. It's an example of the software running. It's a playground so you can play around with the tools and temporarily have a small amount of funds on there. I do discourage anyone from putting any significant funds on there or building any projects based on it where they're not willing to lose the money they've got on there because I, I don't really maintain it at all. I installed lmbits on a server. I connected up the domain and I just let it go. Amazingly, I've had no problems with it. Despite me saying they shouldn't, people are using it just as a custodial Bitcoin lightning thing and it works. It's secure and we've had a couple of people maybe they've done a ginormous transaction and it's got stuck somewhere along the way but the few times that's happened it's actually been the other wallet which hasn't been able to process the transaction the wallet they're cashing out into or sending money from the point of LMBits is you run it yourself if you've got a Raspberry Blitz it's like two clicks you know it's in the menu you can just go and activate LMBits I've just started canvassing the Mino people to include LMBits in their project so it should just be like an easy one click install there even if you're just installing it on your own computer it's like three lines of code or something it's minimal dependencies we're in python you can go through you can look through all the code it's not hard if you take a little bit of time to learn because we obviously we have to have some constraints when it comes to extensions in order for people to build extensions which will actually be used by other people they have to use the framework we're using which is the quasar and then not install too many dependencies or whatever into the plugin and make it easy to verify by other people when they're vetting the code it just means that you have a unified project other people can develop extensions as well if anyone fancies it and they're a python developer out there and you want to build an extension. So currently, I think the extensions we have are we've got an instant point of sale terminal which is pretty cool, which is shareable, actually. So you could give people in a bar or work in a cafe or whatever. They can share this URL. It has a point of sale terminal like buttons and it generates an invoice in there, whatever. But it's completely air gap from your actual wallet and LM bits. So all they can do is generate invoices. They can't see any data or anything. There's that, which is pretty cool. There's the LNURLW extension, which means you can mint your own LNURL withdrawals, which is what your listener wanted you to do to make a faucet. There's an LN ticketing extension. So you can charge people per word. So they fill out a little form with an email and there's a text area and then you say you want to make a form which is i don't know a thousand satoshis per word and you put it out there and then people fill out the form fill out the the text area in order to send that text to you they have to pay an invoice when they pay the invoice the text then get it in the back end of your lm bits there's a couple of extensions which do different things like that i think the events extension is up on there now which is actually flipping awesome like it's probably my favorite extension but completely and utterly useless and pointless right now in our current climate if you have an event you can issue ticket sales for the event over lightning so people can pay i don't know a tenner each to come to your lightning event or tutorial or whatever and then when they pay over lightning for that ticket they get the ticket back as a link they can save the link or they can take a picture of the ticket because like a qr code when they turn up at the conference or at the tutorial or whatever you use the same lm bits extension to then scan those tickets it does the registration as well so it's lots of little projects and lots of little things ideas which you might have to build you can just build as an extension then other people can make full use of it it's cool man like it works and i'm using it all the time you should always build for yourself there's other people out there who want similar functionality to what you want it's got a lot of traction it's got a lot of respect people like it me and Alia have taken probably three weeks off the project just because we were hardcore at it for weeks getting version one out but now version one that's out we've had taken a little bit of time out we can start working on it again and add some extra functionality to make it work a little bit better we want to be able to do all the LNUR stuff the LNUR pay and natively in, in the wallets and things so we need to build all that into it it's a great project I'm super psyched to be part of it what's nice about it is as well is it just kind of fits in between the gaps of a lot of other projects we're not competing with btc pay server even though there is a markets type idea floating around lm bits at the moment but we're not competing with lm pay they have the best uptime ever you know or open node they have great uptime too but i think lm pays uptime is absolutely phenomenal we're not competing directly with anyone else we've just built this free and open source thing people can run themselves i can't remember where it was it's an african country somewhere they have bitcoin online conference and obviously so some of the computer resources are limited but everyone has phones 
And there was this concept that a village could have a node and then that node could then just maintained and looked after by people that were responsible in that village or whatever. And then they could issue wallets using Alambits just for the local community, just for the local village. In fact, there's even a way you can restrict who can access your Alambits install. If you installed Alambits, you could say, okay, only 20 people can access it and no one else will be able to access it, you know, after they built their wallets. It's great seeing people use it. It's great seeing people play with it. People like Reward Portal, they've incorporated Alambits into their stack. So basically you fill out forms or questionnaires and you get paid like a tiny micro amount. And it wasn't in shit coins. Now we have Lightning Network and Alambits made it really easy for them to install that LNURL functionality. Now, you know, when you do Reward Portal, you can instantly cash out, get an LNURL, scan it with your wallet, and then boom, you get your sat straight into your phone. I think it's their top earner. He'd earn quite a lot. It's like $400 in a week or something, filling out, I don't know how many bloody questionnaires he filled out. But he's in Venezuela, so, you know, that money was probably quite useful for him. Again, particularly in the current climate we're in. I find it really useful as a project. If you're interested, go check out alanbits.com. You'll see it as a playground. Do you want to go ahead and let the listeners know how they can find you on the internet and all that good stuff? If you're interested in the tutorials on the World Crypto Network, we have a playlist, BTCIOT, with a whole bunch of tutorials on there where I tell you the sort of hardware you need to buy. And then on all those tutorials in the description on the YouTube videos, there's links to all the GitHub repos for all the projects. They're all on my GitHub, which is ARCBTC. Because LNBits has reached a scale where I shouldn't have full control over it. I've actually moved that to the GitHub account LNBits in a repo called LNBits. You can find LNBits there. And obviously you can go to LNBits.com. Check out the playlist on the World Crypto Network. If you want to chat to me on Twitter or whatever, then it's BTC Socialist. You can hit me up on there. DM me if you want to make anything or whatever. I just encourage people to build things. Hopefully some people will have a go at making some of these projects. They're not hard. I'm a hobbyist. I'm not a professional developer. Anyone can contribute to Bitcoin. Good luck anyone out there who's going to build any of the little bits and bobs I've been building. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today, Ben. Yeah, it's been great, man. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been really good. Absolutely. Boom. That was the 31st episode of the Latin and Junkies podcast. Were you inspired by that episode? I think I was. I have already purchased the M5 stack for both me and Kat, so we can start experimenting with different Bitcoin and Lightning Network projects that can help us to learn more and be able to give back to you guys here. Quick little thing that I'm going to give away here in the outro is that we should have a second show going called our Jolt Episodes that should be going every other week opposite to the main podcast episodes that we're currently releasing now. So every week you should be getting Lightning Chunkies content. The Jolt episodes will mainly revolve around newbie content. This first episode will be mainly revolving around cats onboarding onto Bitcoin and onboarding onto the Lightning Network and what that experience was like, the various wallets you can use to onboard. We hope that you'll listen to to those episodes as well as recommend them to your no coiner and pre coiner friends in order to give them reasons to onboard to the lightning network and to onboard onto bitcoin generally we see this as a very positive thing and we hope you do as well for now we're going to close out this episode but as always we'll see you on the lightning network <laughs>